Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. Check out our website, uh, look around. There's so much information there that can be helpful to you, whether you're a pastor or a Christian or elder or counselor. Uh, just go to the website, gospel-app.com, and check it out. We are in the middle of a series of podcasts through the Sermon on the Mount uh, you can find this podcast anywhere. You can go back and listen to some of the previous ones. I would encourage you to do that. We are in the Beatitudes right now at Matthew 5, verse 9. We're looking at the peacemakers. Here's what the NIV says. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said, for they will be called sons of God. Or my translation, enviable are you who lean into being reconcilers, versus dividers. That tells me that you are indeed a child of God's. So listen, I have to do this, uh, you know, at the risk of offending people. This is so great. Before I go any further, and I've been looking forward to this, I want to draw your attention to a clip from Monty Python's Life of Brian. Um, if you are a boomer like myself, you've heard of Monty Python. You probably have seen The Life of Brian. I don't necessarily recommend the movie. But uh, this is a great scene. The crowd has gathered to hear Jesus do the Sermon on the Mount, and they're having a hard time hearing what he's saying. The crowd's too large. And again, I apologize for any copyright infringement or the uh, yeah, F I've upset you. So here it is. Enjoy. How blessed are the sorrowful. We shall find consolation. How blessed are those of gentle spirit. They shall have the earth for their possession. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. They shall be satisfied. How blessed are those whose hearts are pure. They shall see God. Speak up! Quiet, Mum. Well, I can't hear a thing. That's kind of stoning. You can go to a stoning any time. Oh, come on, Brian. Will you be quiet? Don't pick your nose. I wasn't picking my nose, I was scratching. You was picking it while he was talking to that lady. I wasn't. Leave it alone, give it a rest. Do you mind? I can't hear a word he's saying. Don't you do you mind me. I was talking to my husband. Well, go and talk to him somewhere else. I can't hear a bloody thing. Don't you swear my wife. I was only asking her to shut up so he can hear what he's saying, Big Nose. Don't you call my husband Big Nose. Well, he has got a Big Nose. Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. I was too busy talking to Big Nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. All right. Yeah, blessed are the cheesemakers. I love it. I think that's funny. I think we all need to laugh every now and then. Look, look around the world. I mean, we're in the middle of a war between Russia and the Ukraine. Peacemaking is a hard thing. Whether it's individual or group, it's complicated. It typically takes years. And even then, it's tenuous. And let me give you an example. Researchers have continued to study the effectiveness of the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC. That commission was formed over 25 years ago. I mean, we're, we're getting up to the 30th anniversary of it. And it was designed to, and hopefully, 
to reconcile the whites and blacks in South Africa post-legalized apartheid. It's the benchmark for intergroup reconciliation efforts even today in textbooks, history books. Well, but how effective was it? Uh, how effective is it now? I'm headed back to South Africa, hopefully in December, to talk to black pastors, township pastors. And I'm I'm telling you, apartheid still has roots that go deep, deep into the society, particularly in the townships. Well, here's one researcher's conclusion of the effectiveness of the TRC. Quote, the data shows the limitations of the TRC in promoting forgiveness and reconciliation in any meaningful way. The TRC had difficulties in conceptualizing forgiveness and reconciliation on an intergroup level and concentrated instead on relationships between individual victims and perpetrators. Close quote. Listen, the researcher was also pessimistic about the ability of perpetrators to give appropriate apologies. And then, even if they did for victims, wounded victims, to accept them. Here's what they say. Quote, Former victims and members of their families who testified at the violation hearings rarely mentioned these topics, right, forgiveness and reconciliation, unless prompted to, to do so, and those who did were generally not inclined to forgive perpetrators. At the amnesty hearings, perpetrators were reluctant to acknowledge their wrongdoing or to offer meaningful apologies, expressions of regret, or some form of compensation to those who suffered Close quote. Peacemaking is hard. And, and by the way, I'm not a TRC hater. Actually, I'm stunned at how well they were able to, to do what they did. Another team interviewed 134 black South Africans who had been directly affected by human rights abuses during the apartheid era. And more than half of the interviewees who had received an apology just didn't believe that the apologizers were truly sorry. And furthermore, participants who had been apologized to were no more forgiving than those who had not received an apology. Peacemaking is hard. So collective efforts at peacemaking between groups are commonly invested with the hope that they facilitate some kind of moral and relational repair or that they hope to restore justice and foster positive relationships between the groups. But honestly, there's mixed evidence that collective apologies actually elicit forgiveness among victim group members. Peacemaking is hard. It's impossible in some ways, humanly speaking. This is why we need intervention from God and from God's Spirit. God's Spirit's DNA is peacemaking. That's the whole point of salvation. God is making peace with his enemies, a lasting peace, a deep peace. Not perfect till heaven, but this is God's DNA. Okay? And and it's not just for groups. It's also true for individual crimes and wounds. Issues are very complicated, and most often we're dealing with our mysterious midbrain surrounded by interworking models and shadowy uh, uh, wounds. So think of the place of subconscious habits, addictions, autonomic responses that are controlled by very powerful brain chemicals where we find it difficult to find the right lever to pull to change things. Our prefrontal cortex doesn't seem to be in charge of, of those things. So to forgive, to reconcile, to be a peacemaker, very hard, almost impossible, humanly speaking. To oversimplify, our brains have been created to protect us against hurt and especially repeated hurt. 
The memory of the hurt, the cognitive and the emotional memory are stored at light speed in, in our hippocampus. And it's so that it would be accessible in a mere fraction of a second if there's even a notion, a smell of a reoccurrence. So if, if my amygdala and my, my midbrain senses a threat long before my prefrontal cortex, right, where I reason, long before my PFC is aware of anything being up, my amygdala is going to trigger our fear cycle, fight, flight, or freeze. And the PFC is chemically taken offline by the cortisol. And that could last as long as two or three hours, sometimes four hours. Subconscious reactionary behaviors, which are automatic, not reason, not peacemaking as a goal, only safety. Of uh, My brain says, I'm not going to let you get hurt again. This is how we're made by God. So trying to forgive might set off that cycle again and again. By the way, it will to some degree or another, 70 times, seven times. And... So Matthew 18, this parable of the magnanimous king and the boneheaded, unforgiving servant, is not about—listen to this, this could be very helpful—the the sermon's moral is not about that we need to be more like the king and choose to forgive, uh, rather than like the servant who doesn't choose to forgive. No, uh, 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 no, listen, the moral is that the servant won't forgive, can't forgive, and here's why, and this is the moral— because the servant's not the king. The only time he experiences forgiveness, that's the servant, is in the powerful, life-changing presence and the power of the king, the splagnitsomai, the compassion of the king. Think of the people on the hill in the presence of the king, right? In Jesus' time, on the, on the, the, the hill in Galilee, the, these people are in the presence of the magnanimous king, and they're experiencing something new and hopefully um, forgiveness. So in that abiding space, if we linger— we can begin to feel a new godly desire uh, working in our brain, against our brain in some ways, towards forgiveness in Jesus's magnanimous king presence. It's a powerful dynamic. It's superhuman uh, or extra human that includes a choice to forgive ultimately, but it's not the choice to forgive, right, that I lean into and work on. That's not what unleashes the powerful new dynamic. It's the other way around the powerful new dynamic unleashed by the Holy Spirit makes me, empowers me, encourages me to choose to forgive. So you who are in the dynamic realm of the king by faith will make peace more. You will show more mercy. You will continue to lean into experiencing the favor and love of God more. You will feel less humiliated Right, all of the beatitudes you'll begin to experience as we linger, abide in the presence of the magnanimous king on, on our hillside, if you will, in, in our Galilee. So we can try to do all these things on our own. Uh, that's what we've been telling you to do. But that's what the boneheaded servant found out he couldn't do, and it ended up in a stark failure. So the beatitudes are not about new guidelines. Here's the things you need to do in order to gain God's favor. Um, the, the guidelines haven't changed from the Old Testament. The problem is we need a new source of motivation, of power, a new heart, Jeremiah says, and an ongoing dependence upon Jesus' spirit. And the result will be we begin to, a little bit, look more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, and want to. It'll be authentic. So outside of this special dynamic space, remember Lipte Elohim in the face of God, uh, the, the boneheaded servant in the presence of the magnanimous king? Uh, this relationship— this new relationship, this embrace, this 
so in that embrace, isolated individual victims, he or she, may reasonably choose to entertain and begin to want to entertain a peacemaking posture because there are clearly real benefits to them for releasing the debt. The injustice, right? That's what we tell people. So he or she might work hard to try to make a forgiveness choice, but their success will be very limited uh, until there's the power of God because it's highly likely that your brain will trigger again. It's automatic and subconscious, happens at light speed, and as I said, long before your prefrontal cortex is even aware of the problem. Uh, And particularly, by the way, it even gets bigger and more complicated if you've suffered uh, trauma or if you're suffering from PTSD or if the crime was chronic, it was serial crimes, or depending upon the level of painfulness and shame created and and the public nature of it, it's complicated. But then many brain mechanisms kick in, protective chemicals start uh, being at play. And God knows, Jesus knows that our brain will most often work against peacemaking. Look around. Doesn't that explain the world? And this is why we designed the forgiving path, right? That was our hope, to help Christians begin to process all of this complexity, try to simplify it, go step-by-step baby steps, and particularly where trauma has occurred and the Christian triggers so quickly. And that's why we do gentle, uh, gospel-oriented baby steps, shame-free, so that people aren't confused. They triggered less, and they don't go on these protective, defensive rabbit trails subconsciously. Uh, right? So we're not ignoring powers that work against forgiving and reconciling like we saw in the TRC and other places. We're actually fully aware and we're tapping into a new power. Well, we saw the same struggle in something even as sophisticated as the forgiving path. After over a thousand hurting Christians have been through the path, I can report, and it's encouraging, but I can report that so far no one left the path with perfect scores in any of the four scientific forgiving metrics. For instance, on average, participants self-report a 20% reduction in their desire for revenge. That's amazing, right? Counselors tell me it's unbelievable even. (laughs) But so praise God, the gospel is pretty powerful. And only two and a half hours online, smart device, this is beyond what they have already worked through on their own through guided counseling and therapy. And almost twice that reported that they, they feel more empathy, towards the person or institution that harmed them. 30% reported increase in empathy. What? So think of that person who has been church damaged, for instance, who feels wrongly accused or publicly shamed, and they fled to safer environs, like so many of you. The Holy Spirit in you soothed some of their fears. I mean, those who went through the forgiving path, their shame, their anger and rage, it displaced that with emotions such as empathy and understanding and benevolence, and peacemaking. Not 100%, not even 80%, but there's been positive peacemaking movement, momentum. Not because of the brilliance of the forgiving path, but because of the the Holy Spirit. Almost a 78% experience of justice uh, was for the crime, experience of justice finally for the crime, some even decades old that have affected every one of their relationships. I think trauma. These were, this is an amazing experience, and victims started dancing in many cases. It's a miracle. But note, so much more is left to do. Peacemaking is hard, and, and we need to keep leaning into it. These were powerful and noticeable movements, but not 100% ever. The participants' brains were created to protect them, 
So I say it a lot, heaven's going to be great, and this ain't it. But we can make noticeable difference by applying the gospel. So think of those people who went through the forgiving path as turning a corner, or think of it as a beginning of the narrative rewrite, or a log jam busted and the the river's flowing again in a positive healing direction in spite of their amygdala's ongoing protective work. And also, this isn't necessarily reconciliation. These experiences of of reduced revenge uh, and justice and uh, benevolence towards, empathy towards, you know, it's on. It's beginning the movement towards a safe reconciliation where it's possible. All we worked on was helping the participant get healed a little bit and to reduce their hair trigger, into uh, that, that kicks them into the fear cycle again. We uh, we we see their trauma reduced noticeably so that they could begin discussing safe reconciliation again if it's safe and warranted. But I found that so many Christians are just not emotionally and cognitively ready to even entertain the notion that they haven't forgiven, that they are still being held hostage by uh, their woundings, unaware. No one wants to admit that someone or some institution has hurt them so much that they can't fix themselves or or they can't move on. You know, uh, are are you feeling hurt? No, I'm fine. Uh, I I got this. Time will heal all wounds. By the way, researchers have studied that, and it turns out that that not only does time not heal all wounds, time doesn't even heal most wounds, and it doesn't heal them completely. Uh, I'm not sure. Researchers are amazing people to, to pick, take that one up. But there you go. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Grace does, eventually. <laughs> right? Um, and, or maybe the people who, are, who, who don't want to explore forgiveness— Maybe they just they their brain remembers the hurt. They don't want to re-experience that by digging digging up dead bodies, or maybe denial is kinder than reality uh, sometimes, or fear. Peacemaking is hard, individually and in groups, and I'm going to say, humanly speaking, impossible. But it is the right thing to do. It's godlike. Jesus is saying that sons and daughters of God the ones who have been adopted into his kingdom and who now serve him, who have his spirit of peace in their inner being, they are naturally, innately going to be more motivated, a little or a lot, to enter into the fight for peace and reconciliation more. It's more than just a very good thing to do. It's a godly thing. This this does not mean that we're going to be effective. It doesn't. In fact, this beatitude bridges into the next two that promise persecution for peacemakers, right? Just like that occurred in Jesus's life. Uh, Jesus died, and there was still a conflict between the Jews and Rome, between the Jews and Jews, between Rome and Rome. There was conflict all over, Um, yet he planted seeds, and he sent his spirit. So I'm fascinated by those who see in this beatitude some moral equivalency or new path to salvation, they seem to want to hear Jesus say, you know, those who are out there laying it on the line um, at great cost, trying to make peace throughout the globe or in our own streets, um, whether it's BLM or women's rights or whatever it might be, or ending economic disparities, bail reform, supporting immigration. There's so many good things out there where there's conflict. But somehow Jesus is signaling that this is some kind of second path to salvation. If you do peacemaking, 
I guess, enough peacemaking, then you'll be adopted as a child of God. God will see you and go, oh, you're one of mine. Come on, come here, big guy. Come here, big girl. Well, that's crazy talk. Stop it. It's out of sync with the rest of Jesus's teaching, not to mention Paul's. Better to understand the Beatitudes, spirit-filled children of God will experience a new motivation, and they will actually want to, even at great cost, enter into difficult, humanly impossible, and maddening task of peacemaking between other people. So better, all you non-Jesus followers, peacemakers, you who get it that this is the right thing to do, making peace, right, social justice and the rest, and you who are doing it on your own, if you want to have more of an effect on the real lives of relationships of individuals and groups, you want to deal with conflict better, even deeply entrenched conflict like apartheid, racism, uh, sexism, and so forth, generational stuff, being in Jesus and having Jesus in you is the way to do it. First, you must be reconciled to God. And that's what Jesus was all about, first and foremost. Real peacemaking requires God and God in his fullness. So Jesus is taking a word that was in use, peacemakers, and baptized it into speaking of something far more powerful in his hands. The rabbinic sources had a phrase, asas shalom, a maker of peace. And it was the making of peace between two individuals, most likely Jews who were in conflict, I think marriage counseling, maybe, right? Shortly after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai taught that such peacemaking replaced the requirement for the peace offering in the Old Testament. Uh, So by then there was no more temple and no more offering. So peacemaking became, in in rabbinical Judaism, post-temple became a moral equivalent in God's eyes to doing a peace offering. Meaning that in God's judgment, On God's scales, reconciling individuals who are at odds is as pleasing to God as bringing a sacrifice to the temple. You get equal credit. But for Jesus, that is simply not the goal. The goal is actually making peace, reconciliation, and consolation. And this is going to be very costly, but it is Jesus's passion, and it is what his kingdom is equipped to do, even though it cost him his very life and will cost many of ours. To do this level of peacemaking, it requires first that I be reconciled to God through faith, and then second, to be accessing the reconciling power of God through his spirit in my inner being by faith and my new heart. And like the power that exuded from Jesus as he called the apostles, reconciled these men and women to him, they followed. Something similar can be said of peacemaking. It is kingdom birthed and oriented. It's not just something well-meaning other oriented people can lean into and accomplish on their own wiles, right? And it's certainly not something that can earn you God's favor. You are a peacemaker because you have God's favor and you're experiencing that peace with him. All right, I'm going to stop here. There's much more to say. That's a big topic. I'll pick it up next time, uh, the Beatitude. Here's, here's the, my translation again. Matthew 5, 9. Enviable are you who lean into being reconcilers versus dividers. That tells me that you are indeed a child of God's. We'll see you next time in the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. Take heart, child of God. A powerful prayer life does not require hiking a mountain to be able to hear from God. 
God can meet us right in the middle of our busy lives to help, guide, and speak to us through prayer. I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical teaching and encouragement on how you can make prayer a natural and consistent part of your everyday life. I promise it won't require hiking a mountain, but you just might develop the faith to move one. Listen and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.